Hello. I wonder how many of you believe in ghosts. Uh, well, sometimes I think novels seem to be asking us if we can possibly believe in ghosts. We start with a very recent example. This is from Hilary Mantel's novel, The Mirror and the Light, published last year. And it features a ghost, apparently. Thomas Cromwell has been tumbled from power on the orders of Henry VIII. He is imprisoned in the Tower of London, of course. He's accused of treason and heresy. He's taken to his appointed chambers where important condemned men are accommodated before they are executed. The doors are opened into the lower room. It is a stony, vaulted and spacious chamber. The fireplace is empty and swept clean. The walls here are 12 feet thick and light falls from the windows set high above the head. There is a figure sitting at the table. Silently, he asks, is it you? Thomas More rises from his place, crosses the room and melts into the wall. Thomas More was executed five years earlier in the first volume of Mantell's Thomas Cromwell trilogy, Wolf Hall. Everything that is seen in these three novels, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies and The Mirror and the Light, is seen through Cromwell's eyes. Our protagonist is not, I think it's fair to say, a superstitious man. As novel readers, in fact, we've relied on his clear-eyed, unenchanted, thoroughly Protestant rationality for the previous 1,908 pages. Yet now, isn't that a ghost he sees melting into the wall in the cheapest of cinematic supernatural tricks? Cromwell played his part in having Moore killed. While waiting for death, Moore has been a tenant of these very same chambers. If ghosts did exist, how natural that Sir Thomas More's spirit should return to spook the man who did away with him. But the point of the narrative is that we have no way of knowing the status of Cromwell's vision. His question, is it you, is silent and unanswered. But our protagonist doesn't pull himself together and tell himself and us that it was all a trick of his fevered and affrighted imagination. Most books in which ghosts appear are written by authors who don't actually believe in ghosts. With Hilary Mantel, we haven't actually got quite that reassurance. Here, in the next slide, is the opening chapter of her memoir, teasingly entitled, Giving Up the Ghost, and narrated in the present tense, or mostly narrated in the present tense, that she uses in all three of those Thomas Cromwell novels. We're right in the opening chapter, it's July 2000, and we're not in very scary circumstances. We're in the small town of Reapham in Norfolk, 
rather attractive place, actually, uh, where at the time Hilary Mantel and her husband owned a cottage. That's where she is. About 11 o'clock, I see a flickering on the staircase. The air is still, then it moves. I raise my head, the air is still again. I know it is my stepfather's ghost coming down. Or to put it in a way acceptable to most people, I know it is my stepfather's ghost. I am not perturbed. I am used to seeing things that aren't there. Or to put it in a way more acceptable to me, I'm used to seeing things that aren't there. It was in this house that I last saw my stepfather, Jack, in the early months of 1995, alive in his garments of human flesh. Many times since then, I have acknowledged him on the stairs. It's uh, suitably unsettling, but also very mantelish, quite funny as well, uh, seeing her stepfather in his garments of human flesh. She's talking like she's some 19th century psychic. Um, look at those quotation marks. Most of us would find it acceptable that she knows that she's seen her stepfather's ghost. Knows meaning supposedly knows. We all get funny ideas. We all think we see things sometimes. Seeing is in inverted commas too because uh, we would think that she's only supposedly seeing something. But then she corrects this. Aren't there is in inverted commas, because these things she sees, these ghosts, supposedly aren't there, but they are. Hilary Mantel's one of the novelists who's opened literary fiction in new ways to the supernatural. Though in reality, as I'm now, I hope, going to show you, she's actually just awakening spirits that have flitted through English fiction for a couple of centuries. Mantel's first published novel, which appeared as long ago as 1985, introduces us at the very beginning to Mrs. Evelyn Axon, a widow who lives in a suburban road somewhere in England and makes a little extra money by conducting seances, of course, of course. She is convinced that her house, a nice detached property, is haunted haunted by mischief-making spirits to whom she has, in fact, abandoned the spare bedroom. Nobody goes there because that's for the ghosts. In the first chapter of the novel, she finds a crumpled piece of paper on the hall floor, the spirits again. She picks it up, she reads it. The wavering great letters were familiar by now, Fly track thin. Go not to the kitchen today. Evelyn's heart sank. Like this, they prolonged her existence. They could take her at any time. Kill her, broken neck at the foot of the stairs. Or leave her a shell without faculties. But they preferred to watch her fear, her pathetic ruses, her flickering hopes, which they would dash within the hour. That was the only explanation. Disconsolate, they entered the front parlour. 
sorry, disconsolate, she entered the front parlor. There, placed precisely in the center of the circular table, lay a tin opener. A tin opener. Modern ghosts and ghouls can use any household implement to inflict their terrors. Mantel's narration has the author's articulacy but stays within the character's consciousness, her field of vision. She never, ever doubts that her house is haunted. In fact, as we might say, there is another explanation. She has a daughter living with her, Muriel. Muriel is in her 20s and is, we would say, learning disabled, though the descriptions of her offered by other characters in the novel, even by the kindly representatives of social services, are rather crueler. It's the 1980s. The novel also sometimes inhabits Muriel's consciousness. She is rather more cunning than her mother knows. She's actually also, despite her mother's scorn of the very notion, sort of literate. And she, Muriel, is the agent behind these tormenting spirits. The terrifying tin opener was in fact shoplifted by Muriel on one of her outings from the daycare centre. Mrs. Axon is being pursued by a vengeful spirit, in a sense. It's Muriel. And actually, spoiler alert, she's right to be worried about those stairs, but I won't tell you any more. These spirits, these Muriel-generated spirits, inhabit a suburban house, a nice little property. And, of course, it's always places that are haunted. The entrance of the supernatural into English fiction begins with a special place. And it also begins as a joke, actually. Here is the title page of the first gothic novel published on Christmas Eve 1764 on the author's own private printing press. It presents itself, as you can see, as a fragment of antiquity. The castle of Otranto, a story translated by William Marshall Gent from the original Italian of Onufrio Muralto, canon of the church of St. Nicholas at Otranto. The owner of this copy has written his name at the top, William Cole, 1765, see, quite soon after it was published. And Below, in ink, under Otranto, he's written, wrote by the Honourable Horace Walpole, Esquire. Uh, William Cole was a friend of Horace Walpole, who was the true author. Of course, it's published anonymously. And in fact, the readers of the first edition, some of the readers, some of the more foolish readers, assumed that it really was a fragment of some oldie-worldie, Italian tale which really had been translated by the aforementioned William Marshall. It presents itself as a discovered fragment of antiquity. In the second edition, where Walpole uh, owned up to himself, his authorship, 
the title page declared it to be not just a story, but a Gothic story. This was actually the very first time that the adjective Gothic has ever, was ever applied to any kind of narrative. Now, of course, everybody uses it all the time. Uh, Horace Walpole's little gift to us. The Castle of Otranto is a story of a tyrannical prince and Gothic in the 18th and 19th centuries features quite a lot of tyrannical male aristocrats. A tyrannical prince, Manfred, who after the shocking supernatural death of his only son, who's crushed beneath a giant helmet, which is fixed, was fixed to a huge statue, decides to divorce his wife and take his son's bride-to-be as his new wife. She flees his lustful designs, and in fact spends much of the novel fleeing those lustful designs. Most of the action takes place in the castle and in a nearby chapel, and of course there's this tunnel from the castle to the chapel. There's lots of secret tunnels and passages, another gothic thing that Walpole invented. All the characters in the novel are haunted by apprehensions in what will become a timeless convention of supernatural tales. Servants believe in ghosts, while the social superiors try hard not to. Here, in this next passage from the novel, is Bianca, the maidservant of Manfred's daughter, Matilda, sharing her fears, she's a virtuous girl, sharing her fears with her mistress. Blessed Mary, said Bianca, starting. There it is again. Dear madam, do you hear nothing? This castle is certainly haunted. Peace, said Matilda, and listen. I did think I heard a voice, but it must be fancy. Your terrors, I suppose, have infected me. Indeed, indeed, madam, said Bianca, half weeping with agony. I'm sure I heard a voice. Does anybody lie in the chamber beneath, said the princess. Nobody has dared to lie there, answered Bianca, since the great astrologer that was your brother's tutor drowned himself. Of course, the astrologer. Walpole, you can hear Walpole chortling, I think, as you read this. For much of the 18th century before the Castle of Otranto, the novel, a new genre, had spent its time trying hard to show how an invented fictional world could be measured by standards of probability. Now, Walpole playfully readmits to fiction the possibilities of supernatural visitation. But you have to be in the right place. Walpole foresaw the importance of old buildings to Gothic fiction, and we're going to be talking some more about old buildings. Walpole loved medieval buildings so much that he made himself one to live in. In 1747, he purchased a house and grounds by the Thames in Twickenham, which he called Strawberry Hill. It's now the name of a railway station. He invented it. Actually, typically, he didn't quite invent it. He recovered the name from an old deed he'd dug up. Over the next six years, in consultation with what he called his Strawberry Committee of friends and fellow Goths, word goth of a person used jestingly or metaphorically was first used of, by Walpole of his rather camp 
and aesthetically uh, concerned friends, and especially two of them, Richard Bentley and John Shute, he turned the house into a neo-Gothic showpiece, complete with battlements, papier-mâché fan vaulting, chimney pieces modelled on medieval tombs, bookcases mimicking abbey choirs. Here it is, and post-pandemic, we should all be able to visit again. It's had quite a lot of money spent on it in recent years. I remember when I first saw it about 30 years ago, it was in a state of terrible dilapidation, but it's been reprieved and renovated and restored. That's Walpole's library. You see the sort of thing I mean. Um, a lovingly constructed uh, bit of mock, mock antiquity, like his supernatural novel, wonderful make-believe. Um, well, I've, I've suggested some of the things that Walpole handed down to us which, with, in effect, the first English supernatural novel. But it was another writer whose influence, I think, who followed Walpole, whose influence, I think, was much stronger, Anne Radcliffe. It was Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s who made the new genre of what we've come to call gothic fiction not just famous, but sort of respectable. Here is a typical extract from her second novel, A Sicilian Romance. And romance, by the way, was the word uh, that was most commonly used at the time of what we call gothic novels. As I said, Walpole used gothic on the title page, eventually on, on the title page of his novel. But generally speaking, in the late 18th and early 19th century, gothic novels were referred to as romances. And um, Radcliffe had the word romance on the title page of most of her novels. Um, and so did other, other novelists. Matthew Lewis's The Monk, A Romance. So, Sicilian romance, that's the, that's the weight of the word romance. And uh, this story features two sisters, Amelia and Julia, who are daughters of the tyrannical Marquis Mazzini. Tyrannical, got a title, you get the sort of the picture again. And, but they are flawless and virtuous, of course. Their mother has died... And they are with their governess, uh, Madame de Menon, in their father's lonely castle on the coast of Sicily. Much of the castle is locked up and supposedly uninhabited. One night, they are in the company of their mentor. They were engaged in interesting discourse when Madame, who was then speaking, was interrupted by a low, hollow sound which arose from beneath the apartment and seemed like the closing of a door. Chilled into silence, they listened and distinctly heard it repeated. Deadly ideas crowded upon their imaginations and inspired a terror which scarcely allowed them to breathe. The noise lasted only for a moment and a profound silence soon ensued. There are plenty more signs that something stirs in the castle's locked and supposedly deserted apartments. 
Though for most of the novel, the two sisters are really much more in danger from various predatory aristocratic males and quite a few nameless banditti, always banditti in Anne Radcliffe. You escape the castle and there are banditti out there. Radcliffe's bestseller, one of the big bestsellers of the late 18th century, was her fourth novel, The Mysteries of Udolpho. The Mysteries of Udolpho has an orphaned heroine, Emily Saint-Aubert, who accompanies her aunt to the remote castle of Udolpho in the Apennines. Incidentally, it's important to realise Radcliffe had never been to any of these places. She constructed her, she imagined her geographies from travel books that she read. The castle belongs to her, to Emily's aunt's new husband, the brooding, tyrannical, again, Count Montoni. Again, a count this time. Udolfo is a place of indistinct terrors which take shape by night. In a process beautifully parodied in Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, Emily often lives out her fears in the dark at the end of one chapter before waking in daylight at the beginning of another. And I've tried to get this sort of onto the screen for you, but I can't quite replicate the gaps of white paper that there are um, on, on the real page, as it were. So this is the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. And at the end of, of chapter five, uh, uh, Emily, it's, it's night, and um, in fact, it's, it's around midnight, and she's scared, um, and she's seeing things and hearing things. She almost fancied she saw shapes flip past her curtains and glide into the remote obscurity of her chamber. The castle clock struck one before she closed her eyes to sleep. Chapter 6. I think it is the weakness of mine eyes that shapes this monstrous apparition. It comes upon me. Julius Caesar. Daylight dispelled from Emily's mind the glooms of superstition, but not those of apprehension. Radcliffe, pioneer in lots of ways, pioneered the use of epigraphs at the head of each chapter, just like this. This is, of course, Brutus's exclamation when he sees the ghost of Julius Caesar after he's taken part in uh, his assassination. Um, and, and these epigraphs have various functions, but in a way, they're there to sort of vindicate um, Radcliffe's toying with the supernatural. It won't surprise you to know that the play of Shakespeare she most often mines for epigraphs is Macbeth. Um, and in this passage, in this break from one chapter to another, you see a classic process that goes on in The Mysteries of Udolpho, where things are mostly seen from the heroine Emily's point of view. So superstition, terror rationalisation, and then rational apprehension. There are things to be worried about, but surely not ghosties and ghoulies. Such is the repeated process in the novel. And it is, as I said, brilliantly parodied in Northanger Abbey 
where Catherine Morland goes through exactly the same process of uh, uh, nighttime terror followed by daylight wondering what that was all about. Um, always in Udolfo, there are locked doors that have to be opened, veils and curtains to be pulled aside, <gasps> revealing what? Unlike Austin, who really sort of scuppers Radcliffe for posterity, Radcliffe is entirely in earnest. I may jest a bit about some of the conventions, but if you smile at them when you're reading them, the trick is undone. Radcliffe pioneered what is sometimes called the explained supernatural. Every one of her novels features apparently supernatural events, yet every single mysterious noise, flickering light, phantom-like vision has eventually a rational explanation. In fact, she was mocked by some in her own day for always explaining her bumps in the night, as if she didn't have the courage of her imagination, Coleridge thought. She didn't, wasn't brave enough to stick with the supernatural. Yet this explained supernatural, uh, as we're calling it, uh, which was her speciality, the fear of the supernatural aroused in order to be eventually dispelled, was her gift to mainstream English fiction. And in case you haven't read The Mysteries of Udolfo, not just her gift to fiction, her gift to popular culture too. Not just classic novels. Some of the audience tonight might remember the TV cartoon series Scooby-Doo, the direct inheritor, as it happens, of Anne Radcliffe's fictional techniques. Every week, the big dog, I think a Great Dane, look very like a Great Dane, but I think that's officially what it's supposed to be, um, who can talk, and his four human friends, whose names I'm afraid I've forgotten, would encounter apparently supernatural goings-on in outback United States, only for the supernatural to be dispelled in the final sequel sequence with the ritual unveiling of the fancy-dressed criminals, as here. I can't remember which, which one this is, but you'll see he's... There's his mask being taken off. They often get tied up at the end so that they can be unmasked. And they're always scaring people and creating supernatural terror because of some property scam or whatever it is that they're involved in. And this is the plot every single week. I mean, it's incredible. The, the conventions are as rigid, the genre as inflexible as sort of Racine's tragedies. Uh, it never varies. Always the explained supernatural. Anne Radcliffe's explicable mysteries also have fascinated all novelists who wish to credit our fears of the supernatural. Here is the narrator of perhaps the greatest of all ghost stories, the unnamed governess in Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. After she has first seen what might be the apparition of the dead servant, Quint, standing, staring at her from one of the castle-like towers of the lonely country house, of course, 
where she looks after two orphan children. It was not that I didn't wait on this occasion for more, for I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken. Was there a secret at Bly? Bly is the name of the house. A mystery of Udolfo, or an insane and unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long in a confusion of curiosity and dread I remained where I'd had my collision. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. The narrator has read her novels, of course. She refers to the mysteries of Udolfo and also, as you'll see, I think, to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, the insane, unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement. The mysteries of Udolfo and Jane Eyre, both novels in which strange phenomena, bumps in the night, do actually have a rational explanation. James takes this business of rational explanation, as it were, one step backwards. The reader may believe that the narrator is seeing things that aren't there, as Hilary Mantel puts it. But the narrator herself comes to believe more and more fiercely in the supernatural origins of what she sees and what the children in her charge, Miles and Flora, are experiencing. She comes to believe that they are, in effect, possessed. And she has the story. There is no other viewpoint. Uh, so the narrator never doubts. James's narrator, this governess, reaches for the examples offered by Anne Radcliffe and Charlotte Bronte, but actually in order to repudiate them. There is no such explanation, she thinks, in her, for her case. Well, this is a great ghost story, and the ghost story, in a way, as a genre, is a separate thing, and, and uh, the topic of an excellent lecture, which I'm not going to give. Um, because I want to stay with those novelists like Charlotte Bronte, who seem rather to toy with the supernatural, to admit it to the fringes of their otherwise natural fictions. So let's take Charlotte Bronte's wonderful final novel, Villette. It's a first-person narrative told by a young woman called Lucy Snow, who, after an unspecified family tragedy, leaves England to work as a teacher at a girls' school, a pensionnat, in the city of Villette, which is a fictionalised version of Brussels. The school has been built on the site of a former nunnery and contains an enclosed garden. There, at the foot of an old pear tree, you see, in scraping away the mossy earth between the half-bed roots, a glimpse of slab, smooth, hard and black. The legend went unconfirmed and unaccredited, but still propagated, that this was the portal of a vault, imprisoning deep beneath that ground on whose surface grass grew and flowers bloomed the bones of a girl whom a monkish conclave of the drear Middle Ages had here buried alive for some sin against her vow. Her shadow it was 
that tremblers had feared through long generations after her poor frame was dust. Her black robe and white veil that for timid eyes, moonlight and shade had mocked as they fluctuated in the night wind through the garden thicket. You can hear Lucy's disdain. This is the kind of legend that easily gains traction, as one might say, amongst silly, superstitious schoolgirls, especially silly, superstitious Roman Catholic schoolgirls, pent up within the walls of the pensionnat. But then, one day, Lucy, our unsuperstitious and sceptical and very Protestant narrator, receives a letter from a young English doctor to whom she has taken a scarcely confessed fancy. She retreats to the unoccupied garret of the school building where the girls' winter cloaks are hung to read the precious missive in private. But she is disturbed. Most surely and certainly I heard, as it seemed, a stealthy a stealthy foot on that floor, a sort of gliding out from the direction of the black recess haunted by the malefactor cloaks. I turned. My light was dim. The room was long. But as I live, I saw in the middle of that ghostly chamber a figure all black and white, the skirt straight, narrow, black, the head bandaged, veiled, white. Say what you will, reader. Tell me I was nervous or mad. Affirm that I was unsettled by the excitement of that letter. Declare that I dreamed this I vow. I saw there, in that room, on that night, an image like a nun. I cried out. I sickened. Heroine suffering from some maladie d'amour or has the spirit of a girl, once killed for love, really visited another lovesick young woman? None of these, as it happens. We're not in a ghost story. Many chapters later, the supernatural is duly explained. Lucy's most headstrong and worldly pupil, the 18-year-old Ginevra Fanshawe, has eloped with the Comte de Amal. Ginevra leaves a letter for Lucy, explaining how she and her admirer managed their assignations. Do you begin to comprehend by this time that Monsieur le Comte de Amal was the nun of the attic and that he came to see your humble servant? I will tell you how he managed it. Nearly a year ago, I chanced to tell him our legend of the nun. That suggested his romantic idea of the spectral disguise, which I think you must allow he has very cleverly carried out. But for the nun's black gown and white veil, he would have been, he would have been caught again and again, both by you and that tiger Jesuit Monsieur Paul. He thinks you both capital ghost seers and very brave. Does this exactly explain away our narrator's sickening? It doesn't do away with the fact that the supernatural has, after all, brought the disruptive energies of sexual yearning 
into this narrative. Emily Bronte also invited spirits into her supposedly non-supernatural fiction. When Wuthering Heights opens, Lockwood, the narrator, has rented the remote Thrushcross Thrush Cross Grange and visits his neighbours at Wuthering Heights. A sudden snowstorm prevents his return. He has to stay the night. He finds himself in the room that was once occupied by Catherine Earnshaw and reads the books in which she has scribbled. Some of these are diary entries. Lockwood falls asleep as he reads and he begins to dream. The bough of a tree is rattling against his window, so he knocks out a pane of glass and reaches out to it. My fingers closed on the fingers of a little ice-cold hand. The intense horror of nightmare came over me. I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, and a most melancholy voice sobbed, Let me in! Let me in! Who are you? I asked, struggling meanwhile to disengage myself. Catherine Linton, it replied shiveringly. Why did I think of Linton? I'd read Earnshaw 20 times for Linton. I'm come home. I'd lost my way on the moor. As it spoke, I discerned obscurely a child face looking through the window. Terror made me cruel, and finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off, I pulled its wrist onto the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes. Still it wailed, let me in, and maintained its tenacious grip, almost maddening me with fear. He yells aloud, Heathcliff arrives. When Lockwood tells him a little of his nightmare, Heathcliff throws open the window and calls the spectre in. Of course, this is another kind of explained supernatural. It was all just a dream. That's what our narrator thinks. But Heathcliff thinks differently. Heathcliff tells Nellie Dean what he believes. I have a strong faith in ghosts. I have a conviction that they can and do exist among us. Wuthering Heights is artfully constructed so that we're always at one remove, sometimes two or three removes, from the experiences of the main characters. Lockwood tells us what Nellie Dean tells him, and sometimes what she tells him is in turn what one of the other characters has told her. Heathcliff's faith in ghosts is all of a piece with all his other beliefs and passions and vengeful furies. We look in at these from the outside, only half comprehending. We end the novel with a peculiarly haunting, in every sense of that adjective, episode, again narrated by Nellie. One evening, she has met with a boy with some sheep on the moor. He's crying. What is the matter, my little man, I asked. There's Heathcliff and a woman yonder under Nab, he blubbered, and I done at Passam. Forgive my accent. I saw nothing, but neither the sheep nor he would go on, so I bid him take the road lower down. He probably raised the phantoms from thinking as he traversed the moors alone on the nonsense he had heard his parents and companions repeat. Yet still, 
I don't like being out in the dark now, and I don't like being left by myself in this grim house. I cannot help it. I shall be glad when they leave it and shift to the Grange. They are the young Cathy and Hareton Earnshaw, her cousin and bridegroom-to-be. I don't like being out in the dark now. Bronte has ended Wuthering Heights by allowing the novel to be haunted by what its narrators cannot quite explain. Charles Dickens, uh, the Bronte's uh, uh, most brilliant contemporary, also consorted with the supernatural. Uh, his one-time collaborator, George Augustus Sala, recalled Dickens's tastes in a memoir that he wrote as an old man. It's a wonderful sort of table of contents for Dickens's fiction, what Salah said Dickens liked to hear about and liked to talk about. What he liked to talk about was the latest new pieces at the theatre, the latest exciting trial or police cases, the latest social craze or social swindle, and especially the latest murder and the newest thing in ghosts. The newest thing in ghosts. Dickens loved to hear about supposedly true supernatural occurrences, although it might be worth adding, I have time to pursue this, here, that Dickens was an outspoken and energetic en enemy of spiritualism, which was a great fashion in uh, his day, and which he campaigned against remorselessly in his journal all the year round. So he was no great believer in these stories, but he loved them. He was a pioneer of the ghost story as a writer and as an editor, but that, as I've said, is a theme for a different lecture. More surprisingly, perhaps, he arranged for the supernatural to seep into his novels. So in what many think Dickens's greatest anatomy of Victorian social ills, Bleak House, he includes an unaccountable supernatural element that actually is strictly unnecessary to the workings of his plot. Lady Dedlock is married to the stiff aristocrat Sir Lester Dedlock. She has a secret whose discovery threatens her social standing and indeed her marriage. We can guess what kind of secret it must be. Early in the novel, we find out from Celeste's housekeeper, Mrs. Rouncewell, that there is an old legend about the Dedlock family. At the ancestral home in rural Lincolnshire, Chesney Wold, there is a terrace known as the Ghost's Walk. It is supposed to be haunted by a former Lady Dedlock who quarrelled violently with her husband during the Civil War in the 17th century and died cursing the whole family. When sickness, death, or disgrace are coming to the deadlocks, her tread is heard on the ghost's walk. The novel's heroine and part-narrator, Esther Summerson, knows the legend. One day, she's looking at the ghost's walk and picturing to myself the female shape that was said to haunt it. She sees Lady Deadlock approaching her. 
The thought of the ghost is a prelude, a prelude to Lady Dedlock's revelation that, I'm sorry to spoil this for those of you who haven't read it, but I think you could see it coming, she is Esther's mother. She has had a child out of wedlock before she ever met Celeste. The next day, in the aftershock of this revelation, Esther wanders to the great house and finds herself on the ghost's walk. I was passing quickly on, and in a few moments should have passed the lighted window when my echoing footsteps brought it suddenly into my mind that there was a dreadful truth in the legend of the ghost's walk, that it was I who was to bring calamity upon the stately house and that my warning feet were haunting it even then. Seized with an augmented terror of myself which turned me cold, I ran from myself and everything, retraced the way by which I had come, and never paused until I gained the lodge gate, and the park lay sullen and black behind me. An augmented terror of myself, as if the ghost is what she herself brings. And so it is. Dickens, who always gave precise instructions to his illustrators, ensured that one of the novel's illustrations presented his readers with a suitably suggestive image of the ghost's walk. There it is. Daylight seeping away. A few gothic curlicues and scarcely discernible structures on the side of the masonry. That's the ghost's walk. Short of actually showing you a ghost, it does everything it can, I think, to confirm the character's intimations of the supernatural. Dickens makes it more than a legend. When Lady Dedlock's secret is about to be revealed, Mrs. Rouncewell reports to her what seem to be just the ghostly sounds that legend predicts. My lady, I came away last night from Chesney World to find my son in my old age, and the step upon the ghost walk was so constant and so solemn that I never heard the like in all these years. Night after night it has fallen dark, the sound has echoed through your rooms, but last night it was awfulest, and as it fell dark last night, my lady, I got this letter. Characters come to believe in the ghostly sounds because they share the reader's sense of impending disaster. Dickens is peculiarly daring in declining, really, to explain away the supernatural in this novel, where it doesn't really belong. You can see his refusal to explain it away in, again, some of his illustrations here, These are the illustrations that he approved, done by his usual illustrator, Hablock Brown, Fizz, as he was called. Um, These are the illustrations he approved for the one-volume edition of the novel, published in 1853, shortly after uh, uh, it it had finished appearing as a, a monthly serial. And you'll see there, on facing pages, are, if you like, the novel's two aspects. The haunted house facing the London street where more ordinary things happen. 
if you like, the two, the fantastic and the realistic, the supernatural and the natural, facing off against each other. In the 21st century, there's still much to be said, I think, for this confrontational juxtaposition. An extraordinary example is the, I think, brilliant novel that Hilary Mantel published before she embarked on her Thomas Cromwell trilogy, Beyond Black, published in 2005. We're back with psychics. Alison is a corpulent medium who makes her living by putting the punters of the London commuter belt in touch with their dead relatives. If it's an act, these seances that she conducts in sort of civic centres in the Guildford area, <laughs> if it's an act, it's one in which she utterly believes. She has a cynical sidekick who kind of collects the takings, who's called Colette. Colette is less convinced, but the two work well together. In discrete sections of the narrative, Alison is pursued by spirits from her dark past, the nastiest of whom is a man called Morris, a foul-mouthed fiend in a check jacket who fiddles with his flies and who was one of those who tormented and abused Al when she was a girl in darkest Aldershot. Colette discusses these spirits with Alison. If Morris were Earthside, she had once said to Al, and you and he were married, you could get rid of him easily enough. You could divorce him. Then if he bothered, bothered you, you could see a solicitor take out an injunction. You could stipulate that he doesn't come within a five-mile radius, for example. Al sighed and said, in spirit world, it's not that simple. You can't just kick out your guide. You can try and persuade him to move on. You can hope he gets called away or that he forgets to come home. But you can't leave him. He has to leave you. You can try and kick him out. You might succeed for a while. But he gets back at you. Years may go by. He gets back at you when you're least expecting it. So, Colette had said, you're worse off than if you were married. Much, much worse off. Of course, we can explain all this if we want. It's all a metaphor for the creatures of her psyche, born of the terrors and abuses of her childhood. Doesn't every celebrity caught doing bad things speak publicly of their demons, wrestling with their demons at some rehabilitation centre in New Mexico? We all know about that kind of metaphor. But how much like Anne Radcliffe do we really want our novelist to be? Gothic lives on in our contemporary literary fiction, and I want to end by looking briefly at uh, a novelist for whom that's certainly the case, Sarah Waters, who herself is and was quite a student of 19th century fiction. In her 1999 novel, Affinity, she ingeniously exploits exactly the explained supernatural. This novel is, well, I mustn't spoil it, 
but it's about uh, uh, a rather naive woman who becomes a prison visitor, this is in the 1870s, and encounters a, an, a young medium, Selina, who convinces her that she has supernatural powers. But there is an explanation. In what I think is her best novel, The Little Stranger, things are not quite so clear. It's a novel that pivots on the question as to whether or not there is anything supernatural at work. It's a novel, naturally, about a huge, decaying old house, Hundreds Hall. Hundreds is owned by the heirs family, short on cash, long on gentility, full of terrors about what the seemingly haunted house is doing to them. The narrator is a man called Faraday. You never find out his first name. He's a doctor, not given to superstition. One of the conventions of the ghost story is a narrator who very firmly uh, doesn't believe in ghosts. Here we are in our final passage near the very end of the novel. Caroline Ayres has fallen to her death in the night. At the inquest, we find out from the terrified young servant girl that before she falls, she's called out one word. You! Remember Thomas Cromwell's silent question at the beginning. Is it you? Caroline was the last member of the family to live in the house. Now it stands empty and crumbling. Faraday, who has a key, sometimes visits it and patrols it. What brought it to this? He remembers the suggestion of his fellow doctor, his fellow GP in the local town, Dr. Seeley. I've never attempted to remind Seeley of his other odder theory, that hundreds was consumed by some dark germ, some ravenous shadow creature, some little stranger spawned from the troubled unconscious of someone connected with the house itself. But on my solitary visits, I find myself growing watchful. Every so often I will sense a presence or catch a movement at the corner of my eye, and my heart will give a jolt of fear and expectation. I'll imagine that the secret is about to be revealed to me at last, that I will see what Caroline saw and recognise it as she did. If Hundreds Hall is haunted, however, its ghost doesn't show itself to me. We are now in an age of what Faraday calls the troubled unconscious, a word not dreamt of, the unconscious, by Walpole and Radcliffe. This is how the supernatural now returns to fiction. Oh, it's the unconscious. But by definition, the unconscious is what we do not really know. The ghost does not show itself to Waters' narrator. Of course not. Like Esther in Bleak House, though never so innocently, he himself has brought the haunting. His unacknowledged resentments and obsessions have given birth to that little stranger. The other inhabitants of the house, now dead or driven away, were right to believe in ghosts. Thanks. Professor Mullen, thank you very much for a really interesting lecture.
um, very thought-provoking. It's provoked a few questions mm -hmm. as well from the online audience. Um, so we'll start with a general one first. Do you think that writers tend to resort to supernatural incidents as a means of simply adding a frightening and mysterious element to their narratives, which they may not be able to achieve in a more realistic fashion? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, not if they're good writers. No, I don't think so. Um, it, it is true that it can be, and I think quite often... Uh, was in 19th century fiction a way of, um, how to say, um, uh, exciting the nerves of the characters. So um, uh, actually, if a novelist is introducing uh, the possibility of a supernatural plot, that's quite a tricky thing to deal with and quite an ambitious thing to deal with. What I think novelists will often do is have the characters worry about the dark at the top of the stairs, as it were. So I think there are, in fiction, conventions rather like the easy conventions of film and TV drama, where all you have to do is, as it were, film a person walking along, perhaps particularly a female character, walking along at night from behind, and you're already generating the apprehensions of the viewer, and I think that there are there were fictional equivalents of that, but I think not, not for the writers that I've been talking about. Um, there's one of the uh, commentators has referred to Anne Radcliffe um, and her popularity at the time and her sales, um, and I suppose the related question is, did she need to explain the supernatural in order to be uh, a reputable or legitimate person to sell? Yes. To sell the books. Yes, I think she didn't have to explain it to sell the books, but she had to explain it to sell the books and be reputable. Yes. A really good word, reputable. Um, and so there were other um, Gothic novelists, um, as we now call them of the time, who sold lots of books and, as it were, indulged the supernatural. I mentioned one of them, uh, Matthew Lewis, the monk. I mean, that was a bestseller of a different kind. Although I think now it looks much more like a great big spoof it looks much funnier than I think it appeared at the time. Um, but, but, yeah, Anne Radcliffe wanted to sell books, certainly, but she wanted to, uh, yes, to be respected as a writer. And, and, I mean, a lot of what she was respected for as a writer and what she spent lots of time on was the natural and topographical description, which, which, as I said, she got out of books, actually. She didn't get from experience. There's lots and lots of sort of sublime nature in her books. And the striking thing about them is that, you know, as Jane Austen brilliantly saw, um, they're very earnest books. They're not... Uh, and as soon as you laugh at them, in a way, they fall apart. Um, and uh, in Northanger Abbey, we're invited or. Radcliffe's readers at the time were invited to laugh at them um, for the sort of absolute um, you know, formulaic improbability of, of their conventions. But, but um, definitely the, the supernatural had to be explained because I think Radcliffe thought that otherwise, um, it, it, yeah, it wouldn't be re reputable and respectable. But she had, you know, as, as I was trying to argue, she really discovered something, I think, because the explained supernatural has turned out to be really almost more interesting for novelists 
than the real supernatural, if, there's, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Um, a couple of more factual ones here, um, and if, if we can't answer these, we'll, we'll get the answers for you. Um, oh, God. <laughs> there's, it's about Strawberry Hill. Yes. Um, am I correct in thinking that Strawberry Hill was the inspiration for Wemmick's Castle in Great Expectations? Oh, well, what I a good remember. idea. What a good idea. I don't know. I don't know. But as soon as... So there must... You're <laughs> The question is right. That is a factual question. I mean, there must be evidence or not evidence. I don't know. I do know my Dickens well, but I don't know if there's any specific evidence. But you might, you would think that Dickens, if it's the case, he would have said something or written something yeah. about, about it. But, you know, it's, it's a nice thought. The only thing I would say is if it's an inspiration... Dickens, perco Dickens has percolated it quite a lot because Strawberry Hill, I mean, it's not huge, but, it, you know, it befits the son of uh, Britain's first prime minister with a large inherited income. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite an impressive place. Um, and, and Wemmick's castle down in Walworth is <laughs> an altogether more modest, you know, it's like, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know, it reminds me a bit of those sort of garden sheds that people might make into sort of little castles or something. It's a bit bigger than that, but not much. <laughs> um, the in, oh, here's another one. Uh, the internals of a literary culture feed from a wider social culture, and this is a time of revolution. James is in the era of Brat... Sorry, James is in the era of Blavatsky and Crowley, Arthur Conan Doyle's spiritualism. Do these connect sociologically? Is this England's non-revolution, perhaps? It's kind of a long Gosh, question. there's lots of that, I know, isn't there's that? a lot going on So in we that started, question. what, in the 1790s or something, mm, did we? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a bit sceptical about uh, the relationship between... Uh, uh, political, the, 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 any very straightforward relationship between political uh, context and the early evolution of Gothic in the 1790s. Um, I'm partly sceptical of it because academics have invested so much um, ingenuity <laughs> in it. I mean, the point about, uh, the thing about Radcliffe is, and, and one of the things which I think Jane Austen also, if she were here, would have laughed at uproariously, is that um, uh, critics in particular, academic critics very much, have found in Gothic the mirror image of the sort of turbulence of the times that they want to discover. So there's a great deal of sort of, oh, it's all about political revolution, there's a, or there's a great deal, it's all about sexual revolution or sexual repression. Or yeah, I, I'm a bit sceptical. I think, you know, the first questioner was nearer to it in thinking that what's really clear about Radcliffe is the sort of uh, the ambition for gentility with all the thrills. Um, the spiritualism thing is really interesting uh, because writers from... So the 1850s onwards are really, really aware of it. And as I mentioned, Dickens invests a great deal of energy in trying to debunk. And he, you know, he even sends collaborators along to the seances conducted by uh, you know, the big 
They tended quite often to be American, the big visiting uh, psychics of the day, in order to sort of uh, to, to subvert them. So writers are very conscious of it. I, I, I'm not sure how much it gets into the fiction, though. I have to think a bit about that. Where is there, is there a sort of, is there a seance in a Victorian novel? I think it, 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 I think it affects ghost stories, the evolution of ghost stories, which is, a, as I said, a slightly separate thing, because ghost stories are usually short stories. You know, there are very, very few long ghost stories. They're always, almost always short stories and novellas, and a, very many of them were published in magazines, of course, in the second half of the 19th century. And seances do feature sometimes in those. Um, but I'm not sure that that's quite, you know, a complete answer to your, to your questioner. Um, it's, it's, certain, it's just very interesting. I mean, I think we've got, we've got a lot of questions, but I'm very sorry. We've kind of run out of time here. Um, so I think we're going to have to stop there. But thank you so much for a great lecture, and thank you to our audience for your attention. Good evening. <laughs>